0: Hello and welcome to P.A.S.T., the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is Charles of Orléans, Part 6. Welcome back to the conclusion of Charles of Orléans' story. I'm so happy you've chosen to be here. Last week I covered Charles's return to France and his work to bring about peace between France and England, and within France. I also looked at his life at Blois and his attempts at claiming the Duchy of Milan upon the death of his uncle. This week there will be some more negotiating, but we'll see Charles slowly heading into old age. Charles' help was requested by Philip the Good in September of 1454. Philip's son Charles, the Bold, was almost 21 and a widower. His first wife, Catherine of France, Charles VII's daughter, had died in 1446, when he was only 12, which means the marriage likely wasn't consummated. Philip had set his sights on Isabella of Bourbon, the second daughter of Charles of Bourbon. Isabella was Peter of Bourbon's older sister. As part of this betrothal, Philip badly wanted a bit of Bourbon property that happened to be surrounded by Burgundian territory. Bourbon, though, had said no. So Philip needed Charles. Charles, along with Marie, met with Philip, Isabella of Portugal, Charles the Bold, and the Count of Clermont, Peter's oldest brother, and Clermont's wife, Princess Joan, a daughter of Charles VII. The Duke and Duchess of Burgundy didn't join them, but sent ambassadors. The Duke was a bit unwell. I did warn you there'd be a new bourbon at some point. The ambassadors would not agree to Philip's request. So Charles said it was time to appeal to the king. But he did it rather carefully. He asked Joan to intercede with her father. Charles, of course, also communicated with the king. You can't leave it all up to women, right? Charles VII told Bourbon to just give the land to Philip and get their kids married. Yes, papal dispensation was needed because, well, everyone is related. The wedding took place at the end of October 1454. Charles and Philip's friendship continued throughout this period. I think this is an interesting moment in time that shows exactly how important these marriages in the upper nobility were to the crown, and it's something we see a lot. It's one of the few examples where the king just told everyone to do it now and stop bothering him about it. After helping Philip with this marital problem, Charles traveled back to Blas through La Charite. Philip had sent him a letter that his chancellor would be visiting Charles there. Philip wanted to go on crusade. You're asking, which crusade? Well, Constantinople had fallen to the Ottoman Empire in 1453, just a year earlier, and Philip wanted to go help Constantinople. Charles VII had already said no, but Philip was hoping that Charles could change the king's mind. At first, it looked like this might happen. Charles VII was favorable to the idea when Charles approached him. Sadly for Philip, when it was put to the king again, he said no. Charles wasn't seemingly bothered by the king's decision, just sad that he couldn't help bring Philip and the king closer together. Patrons may know what's coming next. In November of 1455, the University of Paris and church leaders in France began the rehabilitation trial of Joan of Arc. This should be a happy thing for all involved, but for one of Joan's closest companions, This was the beginning of the end. Alençon, Charles' son-in-law, granted not legally for decades now, but they were still close, had been struggling for more than 20 years to recover the town and castle of Fouguer. He had sold it at a cut price in 1427 to the then Duke of Brittany to help secure his own ransom. The Duke of Brittany and the three subsequent dukes wouldn't sell the town back to Alençon regardless of the price. Alençon had started drinking in excess in the 1440s and 50s. He, though, had asked the king to assist him getting this town back throughout the years. But of course, since Brittany was basically independent, Charles VII couldn't help. Alençon decided the key to getting his town back would be to get the English to invade again and then take the territory and give it back to him. Yes, yes. This sounds like a bad plan because it was, and it's also treason. Alençon shared this idea with the English, and as no one should be surprised, the correspondence was shared with Charles VII. The king, of course, ordered Alençon's arrest, and he ordered the bastard to do so. You'll remember, these men had spent much of their life fighting the English together, and they were friends. What I can only imagine was the most uncomfortable moment of the bastard's life, he waited until his friend and nephew-in-law had finished giving his testimony at Joan's rehabilitation trial, tapped him on the shoulder, and asked Alençon to join him outside. Once he had removed him from the busy area, he arrested Alençon and took him to the king. Alençon's trial was well attended, as one would expect. He was one of the highest-ranking princes. I might have forgotten to mention this, but he was a male-line descendant of Philip III. Charles, of course, spoke at this trial. He didn't try to deny Alençon's guilt, but, like Caesar addressing the Senate during the Catalan Conspiracy, he stressed that Alençon should be allowed to live under guard so that he could better his soul. Charles emphasized that Alençon's plans would have hurt him personally, but he still wanted Alençon to live. In addition, he did not want Alençon's wife and children to be punished for his crimes. Charles VII, in the end, did pass the sentence of death, but delayed execution. The king also didn't attain Alençon, which protected his holdings for his family. Only the Duchy of Alençon was forfeit, though Alençon's son, René, would eventually gain this back. Interestingly, the public thought the sentence was harsh. Alençon would remain in the king's custody for the next five years. Patrons will know already that Alençon will be released by Louis XI upon his ascension. It sadly won't end well for him, though. Sorry. Charles was called on one more time for his negotiating skills on the 18th of May, 1456. The Dauphin, Louis, having realised that maybe he should try to get along with his dad? You know, after all the rebellions and arguing and just being a stroppy prince. He wrote to Charles asking him to try to act as the contact point between the king and himself. Charles realized that this would be an impossible task and actually said no. It was one of the rare moments where Charles realized even his skill would not meet the need. In case you're curious, Charles VII and Louis will never reconcile. In fact, Louis lived in Burgundy until he became king after having fled there following one of the many fallings out between him and his father. I'm not joking when I say valois, fathers and sons don't get along well. We're getting to the point of Charles being in middle to old age. For us today, we don't think of our 50s as old by any stretch. Most wouldn't even think of a 60-year-old as old. No, I don't. In this time, though, 50 was the start of old age. In his 60s, Charles was starting to notice that cold weather bothered him in a way that wouldn't sound odd today. He wrote a poem accusing youth of selling him cheaply to old age, and he further wrote a poem going through the maladies of old age. I won't be reading it to you, but no, it isn't just a whinge about getting old. Despite his age, he had a few bits of excitement left. On the 19th of December 1457, his second daughter Marie was born. Had her older sister been alive, Joan would have been 48. Charles himself had just turned 63. Marie was actually 31, which is a bit older for a first child in the upper classes. I have mentioned how she struggled with her health while she and Charles were traveling frequently. It appears remaining in Blois for a few years may have helped her, both her health and her ability to conceive. It could also be that the couple decided to delay having children for some unknown reason. And really, we need to stop asking about people's fertility. They had been married for 17 years, and it would be almost five years before the couple had their second child. Charles's new daughter inspired him to verse, and I do apologize for my translation. I couldn't find a proper one, so I've done this myself. When they haven't slept enough, These little children, they carry under their bonnets, faces full of boo-boo. It's a pity if they do jojo. Too early sweethearts, as they haven't slept enough. These little children, better a mask galore, lie on your cushions because they are so pampered. Alas, say no, 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 when you haven't slept enough. As a parent, I wish I had possessed the brain power to compose poetry when my children were babies. I'm kind of amazed I have the brain power to do this when I started and my youngest were one and a half then. I'm deeply impressed with Charles. Charles' skills in negotiation and conflict resolution would be needed again in May 1459. That month, Charles VII called a council to, well, list all the problems he had with Philip the Good. This list included Philip harboring Louis, the Dauphin. Charles struggled because he felt he owed loyalty to the king as his king, and Philip as the person who would help to free him. Thankfully, council, including Charles, were able to persuade Charles VII not to deal with the Burgundian problem for the moment. Thankfully, the next year brought some joy for Charles. His only surviving child, little Marie, made her public entrance into Orléans in July of 1460. This was something that girls usually didn't do, but at this point Charles was 65 and it looked like she would be his only surviving child. He wanted to present her as his heir. Remember, she'd be eligible to everything except the Duchy of Orléans. In July, he also seemed finally ready to deal with Milan, but then he just didn't. He had written to Charles VII asking for permission for himself, his brother John, and Francis of Brittany, his nephew, to go work on the problem, but they ended up not going. Part of the reason might have actually been the king. He had been unwell throughout 1460 and 1461, and on the 12th of July, 1461, Charles VII died at 58. Charles, now re-elevated to the third man in the kingdom, he had been displaced by Charles VII's younger son, was responsible for the king's funeral. Louis, now king, didn't even bother coming to court for his father's funeral. He did make sure he got to Reims the month after his father died for his own coronation. The funeral services for the king took three weeks, including transporting the body. With Louis XI's ascension, Philip the Good took a leading role in the kingdom again. He and Louis had been close and had both butted heads with Charles VII. Philip the Good took charge and paid for the celebrations for Louis's coronation. Philip loved the opulence of these parties, while Louis dressed plainly and looked far less regal than the Burgundian faction. Oddly, despite Philip and Charles being on good terms, Louis didn't seem to trust his cousin. To be honest, Louis disliked most people, probably including himself. Louis knew that Charles was no threat to him. Remember, he had done a really good job not taking advantage at any point in his life. But this actually made Louis worry that he needed to be more concerned about Charles. Look, I really cannot deal with Louis XI for long. He he does my head in. But Charles has a lot more patience than I will ever have. He invited Louis to Orléans after the coronation, and Louis traveled there with Charles on the 30th of September. While the new king was visiting his territories, Charles had his daughter Marie betrothed to Peter of Bourbon, her cousin, the one I've mentioned earlier. This betrothal was solemnized three years later, but would never happen. Instead, Louis would eventually have Peter marry his own daughter, Anne. Yes, that Anne is the same one that patrons in the heir apparent and usurp tiers will soon be getting a special episode about. And after this message, you'll hear more.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!"
0: At this point, though, Anne is all of five and a half months old. Now, don't think about the maths too much, but on the 27th of June, 1462, almost nine months after Louis visited Charles and Marie, the couple welcomed their only son, Louis. He was, like Charles, named for his godfather. And like Charles, his godfather was the king. And oddly, his godfather would also become his father-in-law. It's a bit creepy. Louis, unlike Charles VI, though, was miserable throughout little Louis's christening and hardly spoke to Marie. It's possible he was hoping Charles would never have a son and he, Louis, would get Orléans back. I should note that at this point, Charles's brother John had one son, Charles of Angoulême, yes, our next subject. But Louis XI seemed to dislike Charles specifically. Charles was, of course, 67 when his first son was born. And Charles and Marie would have one more child, a daughter, in 1464. Probably due to Louis's dislike of Charles, he proposed his younger daughter, Joan, as the future wife for little Louis in 1464. It's likely when this suggestion was made that Joan's physical disabilities were known within the royal family. Yet again, let me emphasize that Joan was a brilliant, well-educated woman and would have made... A great queen consort? Had she been able to have children, or had they even tried? Louis had made this decision on his own and instead of reaching out to his cousin, sent his bailiff to negotiate with Charles. This marriage wasn't fully arranged before Charles's death, which sadly we're getting close to, but we've got a little bit more first. At this point, Charles was probably beginning to show his age. He was feeling old and unwell more often and he was also being hurt by King Louis regularly. Louis XI seemed intent on helping Swarza maintain power in Milan. Louis even encouraged Swarza to make an insulting offer to buy Asti from Charles. Charles would never give up this town because he saw it not just as his right, but as something he should protect. The town equally loved him. Swarza told Charles that once he was dead, Swarza would take it anyways. It was pretty harsh. Swartzo would hold Milan until his death, and his children would inherit from him. But Charles's son, little Louis, would eventually become the Duke of Milan. Louis XI seemed oddly worried that one of Charles' allies, Brittany, would use the excuse of Milan to cause havoc for Louis XI. Brittany had written to the Duke of Medina and the Venetians to assist Charles in gaining Milan. King Louis saw this all as a threat. In general, Louis XI didn't trust any of his princes. Plus, Brittany was close to Charles the Bold, who wasn't close to Philip the Good. Really, French politics is going to be a lot of family disagreements until the revolution, and then some after as well. Just assume they're all worried one of their cousins is going to usurp the throne. Oh, and now that Louis is king, he suddenly doesn't get along well with Philip, Yes, so Charles wasn't the only one on the outs with the king. At the end of 1464, Louis decided that he needed to tell off his princes in person. He invited them to Tua and proceeded to tell them off as though they were children. The princes were understandably confused. They had actually all been getting along pretty well since England had been kicked out. There was Alençon's slip-up, though. Louis had released him. But really, the princes were doing okay. At this point, Louis had only been king for three years and was yelling at his leading men because things weren't perfect yet. He had inherited a kingdom that was traumatized by over 100 years of war, that had just started experiencing peace for the first time in three generations and he was angry that things weren't fixed already. He thought they were working against him. Charles was not well at this point and probably shouldn't be speaking. However, René of Anjou was ready to speak for everyone. He responded with confusion. The princes were deeply worried about the king's suspicious nature, rightly so. René protested their loyalty and told the king, quote, "'We have been, some of us prisoners in order to preserve the loyalty to the crown and suffered many injuries and losses, end quote. Continuing, René asked the king to not think of them with suspicion. He defended Brittany's letters and almost mocked the king for thinking they were against him. Now, Louis' behavior will, in years to come, lead to his princes uniting against him. After René was done, Charles did speak. He told the king that by sowing discord among his princes, he would create havoc in his own kingdom. Louis, not expecting Charles, who was near 70, if not there to tell him off, lashed out. He verbally abused his elder statesman, who had shown him loyalty throughout his life and had worked tirelessly to maintain Valois France. This was likely one of the only times Charles had ever been verbally abused. Even Henry's taunting him after Agincourt wasn't at this level. He was deeply respected both in England and France. He was still the third man of France, and he was yet again 70 years old. No one should be surprised that the princes eventually got tired of being treated this way. For Charles, though, this was the beginning of the end. After leaving the meeting, he started travelling towards Blois, but never made it. His health, which was poor because he was 70 in the Middle Ages, forced him to stop at Aunt Boy's, which isn't that far outside of Tua. He died overnight on the 4th to the 5th of January, 1465. Marie, his wife, likely didn't make it to him. She'd just given birth to their youngest child, Anne, who likely never met her father. With this, Marie was left a widow at only 38, with three very young children. Little Marie had just turned eight, Louis was not even three, and Anne was of course a newborn. Marie would do much to help Louis rule his duchy, and she would live until she was 60. In what would have been a minor scandal, she remarried at the age of 53 to an unnamed gentleman of the chamber, basically a servant. Her son wasn't king at this point, so it didn't cause him too many issues, and she would actually die before Louis became Louis XII. While Charles would have had little direct influence on his son's life, his servants, friends, and family would have shared his story with little Louis. Louis's uncle, John, only lived two years longer than Charles, and the bastard lived one year longer. Both had sons who were influential to their much younger cousin. Louis XII will earn the sobriquet the father of the people. Yes, his annulment was scandalous, accusing your wife of sorcery and being so horrific you couldn't consummate your marriage with her is pretty harsh. But overall, his kingship is well-regarded. Sadly, that credit can't all go to Charles, since he didn't get to spend much time, if any, with him. I would like to think that Charles's work led directly to his son's successful rule. He was a humble, thoughtful man who wanted peace and who governed the territories he oversaw well. Charles was well-respected in general, and Louis XI's outburst at him near the end of his life was a shock to all. So, let me answer the question. Would Charles of Orléans have been a better ruler than the person, or people, who ruled in his stead? Well, unlike most earlier past, Charles wasn't even eligible to rule until more than 30 years after he died. I think he would have been just as good of a king as his son. But instead, let me look at those who ruled while charles was alive first up his uncle charles the i think we can all agree that having a king during a time of greater state power being held by said king having a king with severe mental health issues is not a good thing i'm not making any judgments about mental health issues in general just a ruler having a mental illness that prevents them from ruling so yes, I think Charles of Orléans would have been a much better king than his uncle, but he would have been too young for a lot of Charles VI's rule. I don't think Louis of Orléans, Charles's father, would have been a particularly impressive king, but I don't think John the Fearless's choice to kill him helped France in any way. To the next, Charles VII. This one I need to be careful with. Charles VII is usually a rather popular king but I'm always unimpressed by him. He would often shirk responsibility, give up quickly, especially during battles, and just, overall, he's not very kingly. He was, though, an important figurehead, and it's doubtful Joan of Arc would have supported anyone else. But at the end of the day, his two great generals were the Bastard and Alençon, along with the other princes of the Blood and Brittany. All of these men would have followed Charles. The one problem is if Charles VII hadn't been around, then John the Fearless might have lived another 10, 15, 20 years. His son, Philip the Good, lives to 70 and his father, Philip the Bold, lived to 62. John died at 49 and with him alive, Charles would not be getting any support. So I need Charles Seventh, then the Dauphin, to off John. Yeah, I don't feel bad, even a little, for saying that. In my mind, Charles versus Charles VII are two very different potential kings, who would have ended up with similar results. And finally, Louis XI. Um, yes, Charles would have been a much better king than Louis XI. Charles didn't seem to suffer from any paranoia and was a natural peacemaker. Louis, on the other hand, lashed out at his princes, didn't trust those around him, and was not even thinking about making peace. Louis was unpopular with most of Europe as well. Oddly, the only thing that really helped him with England was the change in leadership that happened the year prior to his accession. That whole Yorkist overthrow of the Lancastrians thing. Louis XI also left things worse for his son than things had been left for him. Before I leave Charles, I thought I'd share a few things about him that Enid McLeod wrote. I also realized I forgot to share my main source, which was Charles of Orléans by Enid McLeod. I do apologize. I actually really enjoyed reading this book and I highly recommend it. It's considered a rare book because it's out of print, but you'll be able to find it inexpensively from most secondhand online retailers. I grabbed mine through World of Books in Australia, but Abe Books had it as well and they ship internationally. The first one of these thoughts is directly from Edith MacLeod herself, and it's, quote, Never a ruler himself, he was to give France one of her best kings. And finally, apart from all such mundane matters, he was destined to become that rare thing in any period. A prince who was also a true poet, and whose most individual voice can still evoke the pains and pleasure of his existence over 500 years ago, end quote. I don't normally give massive reviews of books, but this one, in particular, was like reading a fiction story that was real. <laughs> I can't describe it any other way. Enid MacLeod did an amazing job covering Charles's life. And I just want to say thank you to all of you, always for listening. I'm grateful for the support. Please remember to check out Emmanuel's Lafayette We Are Here podcast. You'll get to listen to French words pronounced correctly, which is always a win, while hearing well-written stories about some of the most fascinating subjects in French history. Now I've realized while going through Charles' story, I have forgotten someone very important for this miniseries. Charles of Valois. He'll probably poison my wine sometime soon. I've decided to add him to the end of this miniseries because I don't want you to miss out on him. So once I'm finished with Princess Isabella Clara Eugenia, I will be covering Charles of Valois. Sorry, you'll have to wait a while, but he's worth it. And I will see you next week with Charles of Angoulême. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pastpod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash past pod